0: If you want love someone the people on the, on the edge, which I think God calls the center, I think they, because they've been so pushed down and so done they have had no choice but to figure out how to find God in the midst of suffering. And in some cases, many cases, I find more joy amongst those people than I do amongst well, in myself.
1: That was Stephen Bowman. He's the author of break open the sky, saving our faith from a culture of fear, brand new book. And it is amazing. Such a rich book about poverty, about justice, about refugees and about how to move beyond this fear of the other that grips us and move into love and risk and justice. My conversation with Stephen was uh, beautiful. I mean, I left it feeling so energized, so excited. So I think you're going to really love it. And you're going to want to get his book, Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear, Stephen Bowman. So enjoy the conversation and then run out to buy his book. Hey, friends, I am here uh, with Stephen Bowman. Hey, Stephen, how are you, my friend?
0: Hey, Steve, it's great to be with you.
1: Well, I, 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 you know, I've really been looking forward to this. And I think before I knew you, uh, I've connected with your wife via email and Instagram, Belinda, and she seems like a powerhouse as well. So, I mean, any family that includes a Belinda and a Stephen has got to be pretty amazing.
0: Well, she's awesome. I often refer to her as my mentor, and people think that that's sort of quaint and kind, but actually, it's like absolutely true. It's because of Belinda. I went. We went off to Africa the first time, and everything changed course. We were meant to go for six months. We stayed for six years, and it's all Belinda's fault. And she's awesome.
1: (laughs) I have, I have a wife like that. um, (laughs) That's sort of like, kind of bugs you that how amazing she is sometimes um yeah so i mean i get that i get that well you wrote this gorgeous book called break open the sky saving our faith from a culture of fear and before we get into that i do want to talk about that but i would just kind of like to hear your spiritual background sort of you know uh your parents and your faith in the early years
0: yeah so small town wisconsin and grew up um, with incredible parents, Roman Catholic. And before I was born, my mother was in a convent. She was a nun. And one of these fabulous stories. Actually, it's funny when my kids watched the sound of music when they were young. They said, Dad, Mom, is this a story about Nana, about Grandma? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. It's pretty much the same. So she was a nun. She had a dream and she felt she was meant to leave the convent. Her mother superior surprisingly said, actually I feel the same, when they would normally try and convince her out of it. She goes to work at a local bank, falls in love with my dad, they get married and have five kids. And so I grew up in this great home. Uh, years later, now a prodigal, not because of my parents, but just some bad choices I made. I'm sort of sw- uh, swirling in the, in, the, in the phase of life when I was asking questions of what is the purpose, what is the meaning, and I'm driving alone in a car, I say one of those dangerous prayers. I went something like, God, God, if you're real, uh, you've got to show me that you exist because I'm just desperate, I don't want to live anymore. And it was on the heels of that prayer when this God just met me in a way that I've never experienced since. I didn't even know what was happening to me. Hmm. But it was just spontaneously um, apologizing, saying, God, I'm sorry. I've done it all wrong. And yet at the same time, it, there was this conviction. But it wasn't condemnation. I didn't feel wrong. I, it was this overwhelming sense of love as well. So I had this experience. Drove straight to where my mom was then a, a nurse in a clinic. And I walk in and I said, Mom, I'm so sorry. I've lived my life wrongly and I'm crying at age 18. I probably haven't cried since I was a young child. So she was stunned and shocked and went home and spent some time with my parents. And then the next day I thought, i got a friend I can call that she'll understand what I'm going through. Hmm. I called her up and I described the whole situation and she said, oh, thank God, Stephen, you've been saved. And I said, saved from what? And it's <laughs> literally what I said. And she, she described you know, her experience as a young child when she she met God for the first time. And the language that she was using was so different than what I had grown up with. And So we spent a lot of time on the phone over months. And I said, what do I do? She said, you've got to go to a church. I said, I well, go back to the Roman Catholic Church. And. She said, no, there's nothing wrong with that, but you probably want to have church that's a bit more hands-on, that you can really explore these things. And so she came up to Madison, Wisconsin, where I was, helped me find a church. We continued our friendship, and we fell in love and got married. And that woman is today my wife, Belinda.
1: Wow. That is kind of a movie. I mean, that that right there could be a movie. Um, that's incredible. It's
0: almost but it's... It's like all true, and it's, so we've, yeah. we've lived it, and we're, we're best friends to this day, and we're kind of both in the same space of thinking about faith and thinking about justice and trying to understand the Bible through the lens of, you know, the disenfranchised, the people that Jesus talked a lot about in the Gospels. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an awesome journey, certainly a very surprising one, not at all what I expected or at all, even close to what we had planned.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of what I like about your story as I'm getting to know it is that it 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 has continued to have surprising twists and turns in it. So um, so you finished college, you went on to business and then um, you left it all to work with World Relief and move to Africa. So talk about that uh, transition.
0: Yeah. I mean, I went into the, you know, I had that Profound experience and we jumped headlong into local church and we're just big, huge believers in local church, as sometimes broken as messy as it can be. It really is the community of faith that we I mean, we're even you know, we even have a semblance of calling of life of community is because of local church. So we did that for a number of years, and then um Belinda uh, she said, Steve, we need to go and volunteer somewhere and maybe take a break from our, our jobs. I was working in consulting and business world. And she was a teacher. I said, great. Can we get more involved in the youth group? And She said, I was thinking about something like going to Africa. And I said, wow, that's a yeah, great thing. And I said, how about next year? And I did that for three years. And the third year, we finally said, hey, let's do this. I can take a leave of absence. You can take a year off of school. Let's go for six months. And we go off to West Africa with Mercy Ships, which was then part of YLAM. Yep. And we did a discipleship training school in a in a you know sort of African context, and it was watershed for us. It was just like wow, um, massively paradigm shifting. And so we ended up staying. Uh, we resigned our jobs from abroad and stayed for six years working with um, Mercy Ships, and so. It was, you know, hospital based care, it was water and sanitation, it was teams, it was just invigorating, exhilarating, and all the good intentions that we all have, but we learned so much and our teachers became, you know, the friends that we have today that are Africans. And we learned all the wonderful things that we were doing great, but we especially learned the things that we, we were doing badly out of a great great intention. So they, that's the best graduate school I've ever had was the African Bush. And uh, so consider those people, you know, sort of heroes in our lives.
1: Yeah. Incredible. And did you have kids when you were there?
0: You know, we, we, we didn't then we were sort of in our early twenties and we didn't have any kids, um, until our early 30s, we didn't expect to have kids. We were told by several doctors that it was going to be pretty difficult, maybe a low chance, um, just some medical situations. And so we were heading about we actually six years in Africa, came back to United States to work with Mercy Ships for a bit, did some time a week in college studying theology. And we were just stepping into the adoption process when um, – Joshua came along, our firstborn son. So now we have two sons. And then later we went back to Rwanda uh, with the two of them, age three and five, really wanting them to experience this sort of love affair that we have had with Africa still do. And that's when we joined World Belief and sort of plunged into World Belief in Rwanda, leading a magnificent team there of 300. And again, that that just wonderful journey of learning from African brothers and sisters. And we were there for two years before coming back to the States. Then we lived on the East coast for about a decade.
1: Yeah. That's when you're in DC. Um, all right. So I love the subtitle of your book. save so break open the sky, but then the sub is saving our faith from a culture of fear. And that really resonates with my experience. Um, with how people relate to God, one another, and themselves. So, talk about talk about how you see fear impacting and maybe hindering us from what God wants for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the last ten years or so, I've spent a lot of time with churches, um, followers of Jesus, all across uh, the United States I and mean, in the world, but especially in that stage and talked a lot about, you know, the least of these, where we had our focus and our calling and, you know, people who are coming into our country who are refugees that have come from horrific situations and, and having wonderful conversations with so many churches that are doing extraordinary things to, in the words of Jesus, welcome the stranger. Yeah. At the same time, recognizing increasingly so the amount of fear that coincides or is associated with. Uh, Immigration, or refugees, or um, you know, sort of the people from different parts of the world that are now in our communities, and there's just a lot of deep fear there. And the question, I guess, we began to ask, Blenda, myself, and some friends, is, wait a minute, um, why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid? And if you take a, if you take a read of the life of Jesus, he was. He was anything but fearful and he called us to um, step outside as it were the walls of the church church buildings and live a life that is um, you know open and welcoming of people who are in the margins who are suffering so for us the past couple years especially became very disillusioning and that is wait we're followers of Jesus so we should be kind of on the front lines with regard to welcoming the stranger if not even loving our enemies and yet, what we're experiencing is the opposite—kind of a retreat and a fearfulness that you know really shouldn't be associated with with uh, the life of following Jesus. So that's really the question that um, turned into a book. Yeah. Why are we so afraid?
1: Yes, uh, our church had a—we um, had a refugee forum. Um, gosh, probably six months ago maybe a little bit more than that is right after the proposed travel ban came out from the administration. And, uh, you know, we set out about 20 chairs. We didn't have any idea what the response was going to be because of what you just were talking about fear and stuff. Well, we had like 150 people show up, maybe not that many, maybe, I don't know, I'm not good with numbers and pastors always exaggerate. So <laughs> we probably had a hundred, a hundred people there, but it was so fascinating to hear about. We heard the story of a refugee. Um, we heard from workers who work in resettlement agencies. and It really helped us to just like sort of get informed about um, what it, what the process really is for someone to enter our country what it means to be a refugee and how that's different from um you know someone that just immigrates to the states and so how would you like what would you say is Stephen is like one good first step to someone who doesn't want to be afraid maybe they're maybe their first step is mentioned you know like getting real about their fear but then what should they do
0: yeah i I, that's such a great question and so great to hear your story. I, I like to say to people who are either afraid or maybe they're not afraid, but they're just asking that question, what can I do? With a, with a beautiful intention there, which is I want to live differently now, especially now. Yeah. So when there's kind of this, the world's attention, I think the world's attention is on the evangelical church and it's sort of this question, what are you going to do? Are you going to yeah. live out what you've been saying? Or will you be afraid like the rest of us? And so there's this extraordinary opportunity for us to step out and say, you know what? I mean, simple things, Steve, like, you know, in a restaurant or the waiter or the person in the hotel that's um, from a different country or a Muslim. I mean, the, the first, smile. And it's like, hey, hello. Yeah. And, where are you from and I, I just love to know where you're from wow, that's really cool and and celebrating that difference and Inviting a conversation or just a smile on the street I mean the, the impact and I've heard these stories from um, from friends who are refugees or former refugees They know when someone is welcoming and saying uh, the body posture the smile the the words the the moment of kindness is can be right in, in our day and age today can be one of the most missional things we can do, This uh, the, the action of love. I mean, so that's very simple, and I think we can all start there, all the way through to find a church like your church, Steve, and so many other in the country that are connected to refugee families, and find a way to say, hey, can I be part of uh, meeting a family or meeting someone? So the really the first step, it's, it's a goal, it can begin with a smile, but I think it ends with get to know a refugee, or yeah. get to know an immigrant and sit down with them. And all the only question you and I have to ask is just, hey, can you tell me your story? I'd love to hear it. Yes. And by asking that question, you honor them and we learn and we will be changed. And it begins a relationship, it begins a place of, uh, yeah, it begins a platform in which to express gospel love just by listening. So I think everybody can do something, and it starts with a smile, ends with a conversation, and who knows where that will take us. I would propose to anyone that, that is uh, interested to take that step that their lives will be you know, sort of radically changed and blessed, and um, it's fun. It can be a fun, extravagant journey just to reach out to somebody that seems so different. And yet, you'll find, as I've found, and I'm sure you found too, Steve, that there's something in common.
1: Yeah. Well, you're quite a ways down the road from me on this one, just in terms of experience, Stephen, but I mean, like, um, I, I have found in my forays into this, you know, trying to know the other, trying to see the other, listen to the other, whatever the other is, is yes, I'm afraid, But when I break through that and have a conversation and hear the stories and get to share the stories, I always sense a tremendous amount of freedom. Like I've just like I just dropped off a huge backpack that I didn't even know I was wearing, you know. So like um, quite the opposite of what you might experience, like, oh, it's going to increase the fear. It's going to increase the threat or the danger. You find, oh, man, I was carrying some stuff in terms of like fear is heavy. You know, fear is, is a heavy weight to carry. And I don't know other, any other antidote than just as you say, and as you write about in your book, it's like getting to know actual people beyond the caricatures, right? Beyond the, um, the narrative propaganda. Um, I, I experience freedom when I, when I move into that, even when I start with fear.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, which is the whole um, enterprise um, that's developed around fear. And it's, I mean, fear makes a lot of money. Oh. I mean, it's, <laughs> what it, to earn quick money is to, I mean, anybody who's a journalist today knows that if you can use fear, you're going to keep your audience longer, you can get more response. And so there's, there's uh industry that's developed around fear. And so when I flip on the television and I go from this station or that station, either one, it's generally using the tools of fear to draw me in and keep me engaged. And so I, after an hour of watching the news, I can walk away and find myself feeling anxious and I might be doing something entirely different at that point. And I'm like, wait, why am I so anxious? And I can trace it back to the, to the spirit, if you will, in the uh, in the, uh, in the context of news and watching television. So fear is everywhere. And, um, you know, when we start with the news and then, only then start thinking about what would God say, it's a little bit dangerous because sometimes we never make it to very simple commands like, you know, trust me, trust in God, trust also in me, or... You know, open your heart, welcome the least of these, the stranger, uh, love your enemies, right? Daunting statements. But uh, so to, to kind of reverse that, and we used to say to people, I used to say to people all the time, look, just ask, ask the question, um, what does what Jesus say about the refugee or the immigrant or the person on the margin, you know, marginalized person? And I found that sometimes the fear is so thick that the actually the first stopping point it seems to be is actually get to know somebody, meet somebody, and whether it's in your university, find somebody who's maybe not a refugee, but is from Iran or or from Somalia. Um, there's just the people are on our doorstep. The world is so globalized that we can find somebody to make um, what is now often associated with fear to make. Uh, to make those people tangible and real and in front of us so that in sometimes just moments that fear just dissipates so quickly and then we can actually clear our minds and our hearts to say, okay, great, what does God say about, you know, the different parts of the world and how we're supposed to engage and and so to come at it from a different perspective and then come back to the newscasts and then and then assess and evaluate the news and the polarization in our culture. From the perspective of, I know somebody, number one, and number two, I just think Jesus would do it differently. And when we do that, when we invert and we we reverse those engagements from person, Jesus, then suddenly we're leading and we're shaping culture because we're saying, no, I don't accept that. I don't, I don't, it's not true that terrorism is associated with the refugee resettlement program because that's not true. It's just factually false. Yeah. And we can then start to lead and hopefully lead out of a spirit of kindness and love and not uh, vitriol or anger or judgment because, you know, when a person's afraid, the last thing you want to do is judge them. Right. The better thing is just invite them into a conversation, invite them into a relationship. And we can do that as the church. And we can have an extraordinary – I think we just going to have
1: extraordinary impact. Gosh, I agree with you so, so much. Such wise words. Well, uh v- I, I'd like to I'd like to ask about response to poverty, because um, you touch on that in the book too. And uh, I think as Americans we have a knee jerk response toward poverty, and that's to just get charitable right away, and to absolutely you know just help and 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 throw money at it maybe. And not that those things are inherently wrong, but I think you kind of talk about a different approach, and, and 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 maybe how the first impulse toward charity can be a wrong one. Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. And I, you said it, you said it so perfectly well, Steve. And that is, it's not that charity is wrong per se, or compassion. And often it's that step of charity or compassion that leads us into a new place of relationship or thinking or understanding. And all of that is right and good. The problem with charity is if we stay there, it doesn't really change us. It may feel good, but it doesn't really change us. And so there's been a lot of great thinking and, and writing lately about the idea of biblical justice. And we've often thought about justice as fixing something that's broken or wrong. And there's an element uh, of justice that is, in fact, exactly that. But when you look at justice through the Bible, it's a relational context. It's about are we related rightly? Do we have right and good relationships across um, different people groups, across different ethnicities, across different socioeconomic levels? What is my relationship to um, the person who's in the inner city? What is my relationship to the refugee that's come to my neighborhood? What's my relationship to the mom across the world and Malawi who's trying to raise her kids and she earns less than a dollar a day like you said poverty. And when we think about it in relational terms everything changes because like oh my gosh I have a responsibility a relationship and that doesn't mean we can be best friends with all these people around the world but we can be friends with someone and we can relate to them less of a, as an object of somebody to give to or there's a need and more as hey this is a person created in God's image and they are in need of something, but at the same time, I'm in need of something as well. And I go into these relationships, um, people who have never been able to learn to read or write. I go into those conversations, which I have from time to time when I'm traveling. And with this question, what is it that I must learn from them? Yeah. And is there something that I have to give? So it becomes, when you move from charity to justice, it becomes sort of paternal or benefactor and receiver it moves from that over to um friendship yeah. um, relationship, both seeking god both have something to give both have something that you know to receive and that's been an extraordinary so i would call it a recovery because it's always been there in the bible it's always been there in the life of jesus But we've missed it for so long, and some really great minds like Tim Keller, like Waltersdorf, and and T. Wright have recovered this idea of biblical justice. And it's reframing, changing everything we do when it comes to, well, things like poverty and trafficking and and refugee resettlement. um, All the things, the great causes, suddenly become less about a cause and more about people that are uh, meant to be. Honored and loved and um, dignified, even as they struggle with some of the most, you know, incomprehensible injustices. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, as I hear you explain that, I, I can't help but just like it's it's sort of about um, maybe for those of us who. Um, you know, have grown up in the, in the, and we're white and we're educated and we have to understand the power differential, right? We just have to understand, like, if you don't understand, I'm coming into the situation without even thinking it unconsciously that I am the person in power. I am the person with something to give. I am the person that's maybe going to give a solution to a, generations old problem there's a hubris to that (laughs) but i think we just need to understand it first like we need to go oh you know like and actually maybe i'm the poor one because i'm tethered to my smartphone all day scrolling through twitter and facebook and i'm addicted to you know you know what i mean like there's just, there's an awareness that I love about where you're leading us to, Stephen. Um, there, It's, it's, and it's, it's a freedom. It's a growing freedom and it might not look like that at first, but when we enter into relationships with folks who are very different from us, um, there's a freedom that can come that is just spectacular. So I love that it about is. what you're bringing.
0: I love what you're saying there. And, and the question is how do we really slip on the shoes of someone else and and honestly so often that requires something that we don't want to pursue and that is we shouldn't pursue but it's just hard times like suffering right and yeah somewhere when something i wrote i guess it was two books ago i talk about those beautiful collisions so we collide with something that really manifests generally as often it manifests as something that's hard suffering you're in you know, inflicted with a health issue or a frustration, Uh, sometimes it can manifest as a, as something that is just so shocking and stunning that it's a beautiful act of kindness or love in the face of deserving, you know, the opposite. Uh, But those, those collisions wake us up to some reality that we're missing. And it's not that we are bad people because we didn't see it. It's just that we didn't know. I I mean, I just didn't know. And I, I went to Africa and, I loved all these people and I was trying to do my best. And it wasn't that I was trying to be more powerful or anything. It was that um, I didn't know. So it, it took some African friends a good couple of years of relationship for me to ask some honest questions and for them to give me some honest answers. What does it, it feel like when we as Americans come and… We offer so much help, and does it? You know, how, how does that affect you? Is it, is it good? Is it helpful to you? And and I you know I learned from them. They said things like, "Well, you know, we we're a hospitality culture, we're an honor culture. Yeah. So when you um, come, we're going to honor you first, but we're not going to tell you you know things that may make you feel badly." And I said, "Well, I, but I want to know the truth as well." Okay, well that takes relationship. Now that we've known you for a couple of years, we know you're not going to go anywhere. We can speak more honestly, but do you want us to? I say, yes. And they say, well, when you offer help as an American, it's almost impossible for us to say no because we don't want to offend. Um, So we feel as though we have to receive. And, you know, Steve, your words before that power differential, we don't even see it. We're not aware of it as an American, as a man, as a white man. You know, we're, you know, I'm at the top of the power structure, and so God has had to use situations of collision, of frustration, of failure. Um, I spent a bit of time talking about the, the gift of failure so that I can begin to see with different eyes and learn and have an empathy that I never thought I could have. And the irony, you've already said it, Steve, the irony is walking through those steps that look awful and feel awful, is actually a pathway towards freedom and love and um, yeah, authenticity that I never dreamed of. And I, I I don't get up every day and look for collisions or problems. But <laughs> when become, I'm trying to live my life this way and I'm in mean, half the time at best, I, I'll ask this question, which is, okay God, this isn't going the way I had hoped and I'm frustrated and I'm anxious and God, what is the message? Be my pastor. You know, somebody once said, who suffered from cancer, said, beautiful African-American um, uh, phraseology, cancer, cancer is my pastor, my pastor is cancer. And the, the idea is there that the suffering that he endured through cancer helped him to experience God in ways that he could never have experienced had he not gone through that suffering. And so that, that is true just as much for the daily anxieties on the road or when you're driving or you hoped you'd done better on you know, a presentation. And why is that frustration there here and now? Is it just all for naught or is God wanting to say something through that to draw us and lead us to a place of freedom? And that place of freedom, Stephen, always has less fear. And it puts us into the place of actually loving more, leading more and shaping our culture rather than being shaped by it.
1: Yes. Yes. And there is a pathway to that. I mean, you know, and and that's, um, yeah, that's the journey that I sense. Well, that I know that you're on. It's so beautiful. Um, okay. So you've, you've organized this book into three words, which I love, uh, truth, love, and risk. Talk about what those words, I mean, you know, it's like, talk about your entire book in 30 seconds. (laughs) I'm not asking you to do that, but like, why these three categories, uh, why did you shape your book that way?
0: Yeah, when I began to ask this question, why are we so afraid? And so the disillusionment that we had been walking through, Belinda and I, for the past couple of years I started to ask the question, we'll get, is there something deeper? Is it, It's more than just doing something, because we've been trying to do new things through the justice movement and otherwise. And so I began to reframe it for me and, and in the book as a re-encounter with God, and, and do, must we sort of re-encounter Jesus um, coming back to what we experienced, or if we haven't experienced before, encountering it for the first time. And, and so the, the departure point is, is truth. And it's, what is the truth of the gospel? And what have we missed that has left us so afraid? Have we missed something when it comes to um, uh, to grace? I mean, what really is grace? Do we live out of that grace or has it become more cognitive for us? You I know, mean, we were saved by grace, but what does that really mean to live out of that grace? And so truth, honest truth, right? Back to the suffering and all those questions actually becomes an invitation to re-encounter or encounter Jesus and really get to the basic fundamentals, the core components of faith, which are absolutely liberating, right? And once having encountered that truth, um, we are left almost without choice, but to love more, because we're more free. So we're more free to give, more free to love, more free to, well, here's one, more free to let ourselves off the hook, right? I don't know if you're like this, Steve, but I've lived so much of my life beating myself up for mistakes even really small ones and so when there's freedom that comes with grace and truth and all these things that i'm talking about there's also a freedom to just be okay with my mistakes and say thank you god for that i'm learning and you're cool with me learning much like way i would celebrate my kids when they were young and if they fell down i wasn't gonna you know beat them up for falling down i was gonna say that they got up yeah. So, love becomes more of an outflow rather than a than a than a pre, you know premeditated action it becomes who we are. Justice is not just what we do; it's who we become. Yeah. And um, you know, these people that I that I hold up in the book um, are the people on the margins as our teachers. So my own story is that, right? I've learned more from Africans than I have from you know degrees. And so the book, the the structure of the book is around love, or it's around truth and love, and then having experienced this truth and flowing more in love, it's much easier to take risks. But the way I do that is I talk about um, people in the Bible that are the unlikely teachers. So the people in the Beatitudes, the poor, the the sad, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Jesus held them up as the standard, and he would have created a huge gasp in the crowd particularly by the Pharisees and those that were abiding by the strict minutiae of the law. And he says, actually, these folks are the heroes. These are the ones that are blessed and happy. And so what if we were to take that in today's context, and with all due respect to the wonderful people that I know around our country and the world, who are teachers and pastors and leaders, and I love them all, and I'm one of them, so I don't want to sort of throw anybody under the bus, But I wonder if the message of Jesus is something like, yeah, those guys are great, they're great, but you can learn a whole lot more by what we tend to call the down and out, the outcast. And Jesus did that. He kind of paraded people and said, actually, this woman was a sinner, and she really sinned badly. But actually, you're going to experience the most love out of the person that sinned the most badly. Look to her. She'll be remembered for all time whenever you think about me as Jesus. I mean, that's pretty (laughs) amazing. So much of my journey has been learning from people that we would say on the margins and on the edge, but I I think that actually what we often call the edge or the margins is actually God's center, and that's where he's actually working most strongly, most powerfully, and somehow he's saying in the places that are forgotten, like uh, Syria or Yemen or Sudan or or countries like Laos, so that people don't think about these days much, or Niger. Uh, I think Jesus is there working in a big way, and there's actually very hopeful things happening there. And in some ways, he's saying, come, come and see what's happening here. And as you come and see and learn, you will be changed, and your faith will be strengthened, and you'll be um, different people as a result. Yes.
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. And I think, you know, even thinking about um, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and what must I do to inherit eternal life and, you know, well, follow the commandments, you know, <laughs> oh, one more thing, it's all you have, um, give it to the poor. You know, I think there's like we, it's almost impossible to not hear that as this big rule that Jesus is giving. It's like saying, you know, if, if you have any any money of any kind, you're totally missing it and you're not it. Versus this invitation to, like, say, hey, you know, if you really want to experience a fulfilled life now, um, you need to hang around the poor. They will teach you everything it means right, to live a full, beautiful life. And it's not, you know, so, like, I I just, I love how you're inviting us to see the words and teachings of Jesus in a non-judgmental, non- legalistic you know I mean harsh I mean some of them are very harsh not taking the, the the strength away from what he says but I think so often we read them through the lens of performance and getting it right and not getting it right and we just miss the point when we do that right
0: yeah I'm, I'm totally with you on that and I I mean one of the questions I, I get as well if Jesus is holding up poor and suffering as the examples, then is that mean we have to become poor to experience that kind of, of you know uh, freedom and hope and faith. And I, I, I don't think that's I don't think God is inviting us to become poor. And I don't think God has a problem with wealth. Right. What I think he's saying is that okay, the people on the on the edge, which I think God calls the center, I think they because they've been so pushed down and so done on they have had no choice but to figure out how to find God in the midst of suffering. And in some cases, many cases, I find more joy amongst those people than I do amongst well in myself. And so the message there is explore what's happening with those people and then apply it to your own suffering. Every human being suffers whether it's you know, it's all relative, right? Somebody, somebody's lost a parent. Somebody's child is not doing as well at school. And so you, you're staying up late at night worrying and praying about it. So everybody has a place of suffering. The message of the down and out, the, the people in the Beatitudes is, to, is, is simply this. Take your place of suffering, of anxiety, of hurt, and let God harvest it towards freedom and flourishing and love. And don't ignore, or don't, in one book title years ago, was don't waste your sorrows. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an invitation to take the pain and let God, through the act of surrender and saying, God, I trust you, I'm not going to resist this anymore. I'm going to embrace this. I'm not going to look for suffering, but when it comes my way, I'm going to bear hug it and say, God, what must you teach me? What liberty, what, what love must bring in me through this journey? And that is an extraordinary, if you will, conversion uh, over time, right? There is the conversion, and when I got saved, and these type of things, I don't want to diminish that, but I think there's a life conversion, and the, the greatest teacher for that conversion journey is pain and suffering. And uh, that, that doesn't mean we don't experience joy. I would actually make the argument that those that are suffering most that I've met in the world are often the most joyful.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, gosh, forty-two minutes goes by real quick. Um, so we're—I gotta wrap it up, Stephen. But any—is there anything you wished I would ask you? I, I would have asked you that I didn't, or any any other uh, thing you want to throw in there?
0: You know, I, let me read the let me read the quote um, that gave life or gave, you know, the, the reason for the title, Break Open the Sky, and it's hopeful, right? I mean, the subtitle is, is, captures the heart of the book, you know, how do we save our faith from a culture of fear, and, and are we at risk of losing, um, I'm not suggesting people, any one of us are, going you know, lose our faith, but I believe there's a referendum, if you will, on evangelicalism, and that is in a moment in history when um, suffering is is everywhere and are we going to step back and retreat or are we going to reach out and say we want to be a part of this, we want to welcome, we want to help. And I think and there's a moment in history now that if we retreat it's going to be catastrophic to the movement of evangelicalism or the movement of faith even if personally individually we don't ever step away but collectively what does that mean so the, the title of the book break open the sky is a is a is from a quote by a poet african american named walter mosley he says you know it's this idea that can we really change can we overcome our fear can we can we become better and he says we are not trapped or locked up in these bones no no we are free to change and love changes us. And if we can love one another, we can break open the sky.
1: Wow. That's gorgeous. That's Walter Mosley.
0: That's Walter Mosley, yeah. And that's that's where the title of the book came from. And it's, I try to take all the things about justice and fear and try and bring it into a place of hopefulness. Because I believe fundamentally God is not only good... But he's just—he just—he's inspiring and wants us to flourish. Yes. And so that's part of the book.
1: Oh man, gosh, that's good. Well, folks, you got to get this book, "Break Open the Sky: Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear," Stephen Bauman. And um, are you going to be anywhere teaching or leading any workshops or anything around this kind of stuff in the in the coming months, Stephen, that I can um, yeah, point people to? There's,
0: there's a whole string of. Dates that I have to actually put up on our website. It'll go up in a week or so. So, breakopensky.com or Stephen Bowman.com, and, and you'll see some stuff there. And anybody wants to reach out, send me a, a message through Facebook, through Twitter. I love to talk about these things and I love sort of one-on-one contact with people. So reach out. I'd love to talk with you and get your ideas, your thoughts, and, and your challenges, right? What are the pushbacks on the book? I want that and I need that. So yeah. uh, either one of those places you'll find me.
1: Okay, gang. I'm going to put all of those links on the sh- on the show notes, steveweens.com slash show notes uh, to buy the book, to connect with Steven via Facebook, and breakopenthesky.com. You can check that out. Uh, it'll be updated with all kinds of places where Steven's going to be. So if he's in your area, you can go hear him teach and talk to him and all that good stuff. So, man, thank you so much. Honestly, this is very, this was very good for my soul just to talk to you. Well, <laughs> it's a me side too. benefit of doing podcasts is I, 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 get to experience the richness of these conversations. Um, and,
0: and me too. I mean, when I tell the story, it reminds me of how much this is, you know, it's sort of writing a book is sort of shouting and preaching and inviting yourself, and hoping that others can be helped as well. So I'm totally 100% there with you.
1: Cool. Well, friends, we're dust and we're breath. We're limited and limitless. We're human and holy and we're in it together. Um, so thanks, Stephen. Thanks for your time. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's Author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, SteveWeens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at Patreon.com/slash This Good Word in your suburban
0: back